Amen. If you would, please turn to the book of Psalms. We are in Psalm 10 this morning. Psalm 10, verse 1, if you uh, do not have a Bible, feel free to follow along with the words on the screen. Psalm 10, verse 1. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hardly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in his thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws them into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten he has hidden his face. He will never see it. Arise, O Lord. O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, we pray and ask that you may draw near to us this morning as we open your word and we pray, Lord, for a transformation that can only come through your Holy Spirit. We pray for an understanding of your word that comes through a divine illumination through your Holy Spirit. So we pray for those things. In Jesus' name, amen. One of C.S. Lewis's last published works, in fact, might be one of his, probably might be the, I think, the last of his published works, was a fictional story called So We Have Faces. In that story, it's a telling of a tale through the lens of an aged monarch over an ancient kingdom who's experienced different trials and situations, tragedy, even experiencing the loss of her sister. And what she does in this story is she compiles a list of evidence 
to present before the gods, to make a case before the gods. Seems like, or sounds like a similar story that you and I, most of us at least, might be familiar with. Story of Job, in case you might be still sleeping this morning. But she presents this case before the divines, before the gods, and she comes to the realization that her case against the gods is actually a case against herself. Because she realizes that she really isn't an innocent party, that she isn't righteous, that she has been mischievous, that she has been wicked, that she has been treacherous in her life. We might be tempted to ask throughout many times in our lives the question of what the question of how or the question of why. When we ask questions like what, like what is going on in the world? What is going on in my life? Or the question of how or the question of why. Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this happening in the world? Essentially, the questions of who or the question of whom. And how you answer that question is the most important thing about you. And how you answer that question might actually give you hope or might not give you anything at all. The passage here this morning begins with the question of why. And what we see, or rather, when we think of even just the story of Job, who similarly is asking for his day in courts to make his case before God, what we understand about suffering and what we even understand about wickedness according to the Scriptures is that there is a God who is in control, that there is a God who is sovereign, and that there is a God who is orchestrating all things according to the counsel of his will, and a God who is also purposing things, even the wickedness that we might experience in our personal lives for our own good, that he means to draw out good for our personal lives. In this psalm, you'll see as we kind of walk through it, is that it places sort of a greater attention, and not to God, but a greater attention upon the wicked, making the psalm kind of a very somber psalm, maybe even kind of a dark kind of psalm. But there isn't an absent God behind the psalm, just like there isn't an absence of God in the wickedness in the world, and that there isn't an absence of God when we experience personal tragedy and situations in our lives. And so we'll see a couple things here in the psalms. In Psalm 10, we'll see, first, the despair of the godly the godly, that is, those who put their trust in God, those who believe in His Son, Jesus Christ, they are considered the one, to be the ones who are godly or godlike. There's a particular despair of the godly that we see in the Psalms, but there's also an optimism of the, of the godly as well that we see in this particular Psalm. So first, the Psalm speaks to the despair of the godly. Now, Psalm 10 actually might have been one, a single psalm in connection with Psalm 9. So together, they might have actually been one psalm. 
in part because in the Hebrew, it, it actually it, it follows kind of an alphabetical order with covering all the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, but also you see similar themes in Psalm 10 with Psalm 9. The theme of wickedness, the theme of the affliction and those who are oppressed by the wicked, but also you see the theme in both Psalms of the, of the, of the transcendence of God, that God is king forever and ever, that he is enthroned forever. And so if you were here last week, think of today as sort of a continuation of last week's message. So the psalm begins with a question of why. Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? He's asking similar questions that you and I might ask. But he's addressing those questions to someone. To a God he believes, a God that he trusts in. remember last week I said that we should not base our confidence upon God based on what we perceive with our senses, based on what we feel, based on what we think, based on what we can see with our eyes, based on what we can hear. We should not base our confidence upon God by our senses. The psalmist here, even though Psalm 9 begins with a, 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 a word of praise an encouragement for the God who is there, for the God who is present, for the God who is sovereign over all things. What we see here is kind of what we normally experience. We might at one moment be praising the Lord and the next moment still asking why. Coming to a moment where we might be perceiving the things by our natural eyes, basing our confidence upon God based on what we are experiencing perceiving the work of God or the lack of the work of God by our own personal experiences. This is what I would call a kind of an earthy perception. More on that a little bit later. And so what does the natural conclusion of one with an earthy perception, one who perceives the things in the world and even the, what he or she perceives what's happening in their life, through kind of a, an earthy kind of lens, through the natural lens and not through the eyes of faith. Well, they come to the natural conclusion that godliness continues to reign, that things happen just as they happen, that there is no purpose, that there is no meaning, that wickedness continues to go on and on and on without any kind of judgment or consequence or repercussions. And it's not only that the godless continues in his ways that might cause the godly to despair, but it's also the arrogance of the wicked and his continuation of his wickedness. In verse 2, it says, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Verse 3, the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. He's the one greedy for gain. Verse 4, in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek God. His ways prosper at all times. In the eyes of the wicked, the judgments of God are on out high, out there, somewhere, has nothing to do with me here in the present. This is the arrogance of the wicked. Because it's a description of the godless. The godless are arrogant, greedy, boastful, prideful. 
They despise the Lord. But throughout the psalm, we also read of the words of the godless. The words of the godless are, there is no God, they say. I shall not be moved. God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see. We begin to see but the wicked person that this psalm describes is that this is a practical atheist. When the wicked says, according to the passage, there is no God, he's not saying that there is no God whatsoever, that there is no God in the heavens, because that kind of idea would have been inconceivable back then in the time of the Psalms. But rather what he's saying when he says that there is no God, that there is no God who will hold me accountable. That there is a God, but he kind of stands distant, far away from his creation, no intimate involvement with the happenings of the world. What I do here does not matter. Nobody is holding me to account. So in that sense, they are a practical atheist, live as if there is no God, as if no one will call him to account. They don't ask the question of what or why or how. They don't care. And even if they should ask those questions, they don't have an answer. His very thoughts give off the stench that there is no God. Verse 4, it tells, us, it tells us that in the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, does not seek God. of the personal, the, the countenance, his appearance, his demeanor, everything about this person is godless. He's a practical atheist. God will not hold me to account. One Hebrew scholar and commentator writes this with verse 4, thinking about verse 4 in mind. He says that the wicked man does not seek God in his towering wrath. That there's a certain kind of wrath about the godless man. That a godless, a godless person has an aroma of wrath about him that is rebellious towards God, has no inclinations towards God, has no consideration of God, has no desire for God, has no desire to live his life under the sovereignty of God. His very life is anti-God, whether he sees his life that way or not. He considers the judgments of God out of sight. They're out there. They don't mean anything to me today. A favorite motto of the godless is out of sight, out of mind. It's a willful ignorance, a self-inflicted blindness. Romans 1.18 has something to say about the godless person. It tells us, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. The godless person continues to live in godlessness. They do not perceive that he's experienced, he doesn't experience any particular consequences or repercussions today. And so that gives them an assurance that it does not matter. Romans 1.18 tells us that the wrath of God is already revealed, that the wrath of God is already present today. 
And if you continue to read from Romans 1, verse 18, all the way down to the end of the chapter, you'll see what the judgment of God is. The judgment of God is giving man over to greater and greater and greater sin. Why do we have so much hostility in the world? Why is there so much animosity? Why is there disunity in our country, in the schools of our children? Why is there, why is there uh, violence in different parts of the world? Why are people suffering to various different degrees at the hands of those who are wicked? It's because God is giving man over and over to greater judgment. For what purpose? In order to increase the degree of his judgment when Christ returns. The countenance, the appearance of the godless man is one who has no care for God. And if such is the countenance of the godless, it is only because his heart is godless. In verse 6, he says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Verse 8, he sits in ambush in the villages watching for the helpless, seizes the poor. He says in his heart, in his heart, verse 11, God has forgotten, he has hidden his face, he will never see it. I think what we had feared is what we would, what we would call an inclusio. Two bookends, and in the middle, it's kind of what's sandwiched between these bookends. And the, what's in the middle is intended to clarify what the bookends are, it's intended to give meaning, to draw our attention to what's in the middle. Verse 6, in his heart he says this. Verse 11, in his heart he says this. In other words, what's in the middle is essentially what's coming out of the heart. And Jesus spoke about the heart of man in Mark 7, 20. Jesus says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, Wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things come from within and they defile a person. And ultimately come from the heart. So if there are these things evident in a person's life, it is ultimately because that is what is in his heart. And so what does this passage tell us about the heart of the godless? First, it tells us something about his mouth. is filled with cursing, deceit, and oppression. In other words, the fruit of his mouth shows forth his godlessness. A couple of weeks ago, we saw one of the Psalms and how Jesus quotes a particular passage in that Psalm, which says that out of the mouth of infants you have established strength, which Jesus mentions again in the Gospel. It says, out of the mouth of infants you have established praise. God gets more glory from the, from the crying infant than the godless person. It's telling us that the fruit of his mouth is rotten, it's putrid, it reeks, it is detestable. There's a fruit filled with maggots. Romans 3.13 speaks to this, reiterates the same points. Romans 3.13, their throat is an open grave, they use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips. 
Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. So it speaks to his mouth, it also speaks to his actions. It tells us that he, that he sits in ambush, is describing a person who is outside of the village, waiting for the innocents to come out and kind of pounce on them and attack. The Israelites in the Old Testament considered themselves the covenant community. They considered themselves the people of God. And anything outside of the community belonged to the world, belonged to the realm of darkness. So what this is giving us is a description of a godless person whose home is not in, a, is not in the covenant community, but his home is in the darkness. This is where he resides. This is where he feels comfortable. This is what he calls his home sweet home. Romans 3 reiterates the same, the same thing. Romans 3.15, their feet are swift to shed blood, their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. The Gospel of John in 3.19 tells us that this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. The people loved the darkness rather than the light of Jesus Christ. In other words, there's an embracing of darkness. There's an affection towards the darkness. There's a love for the darkness. We've walked through the Gospel of John Something I always say when thinking about the Gospel of John or talking about the Gospel of John is that John makes a very good, a very good distinction between the light and the darkness. In the darkness, the Gospel of John, is the world. The judgment is, the overarching judgment of the world is that the people loved, embraced, were affectionate, were drawn to the darkness rather than the light who is Jesus Christ. And that's intended to communicate something scandalous, something even also vile and detestable. I mean, can you imagine embracing a giant maggot? Can you imagine being affectionate towards the trash that you throw out each week? That's the picture I think the Psalms, even the Gospel of John, is trying to paint for us of how scandalous and how putrid it is to be thinking about loving the world rather than loving the light of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes it very clear. You either love him or you love the world. There is no in-between, right? No, I, I love a little bit of Jesus and I love a little bit of the world. Or I love Jesus a lot and I love a lot of the world as well. I'm kind of in this in-between person right here. No, the, the, Jesus is very clear in the New Testament that you either love Jesus or you love the world. It's not both. It's one or the other. Next. The psalm speaks to 
the eyes of the wicked or the godless person. He sets his sights on the next target. What else will I devour? What else would I gratify my desires with? What else can I consume? How else can I pursue my self-pleasure? How else can I give more to myself? It's like a lion that is generally driven by animal instincts and cravings. And so the godless man is driven by appetites. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. 11, he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. They have this perceived stability about themselves. They believe themselves to be standing on stable ground and everybody else standing a sort of ontotonic place that when it moves, the ground beneath them shakes and they fall to the ground. They have a false assurance about their own stability. They have a false confidence about themselves. And where does this confidence come from? They come from the, it comes from the fact that they continue in their godless ways without repercussion, without consequence, without judgment. They think, yeah, there is a God, but he's hidden his face from what I do with my life. And that's a good thing. It's like walking by an alley and witnessing a robbery and just kind of walking away pretending like it's not happening. And that what, that's what God is like. God sees or knows what's happening in the world, but he turns his face away. He hides as if like, pretending like it doesn't exist or like it's not happening. So this is the description of a godless person, someone who is a practical atheist. The practical atheist or the godless person is a person whose heart is filled with a brazen arrogance that produces not the fear of God, but a fearlessness before God. So given this definition based on the passage, right, we might reserve the description here in Psalm 10, 6-11, for the most vile and wicked persons on the planet. But the scriptures do not have such a narrow definition. The definition is actually much more broad. This essentially just describes any person who lives their life outside of a relationship with God. It is a broad definition. of all humanity. You just have to have a fearlessness before God and a love for the world and the passage is describing you. The English writer and philosopher G.K. Chesterton was once received a letter from Time Magazine just simply asking the question, Dear Sir, what is wrong with the world? And Chesterton responds back and simply says, What is wrong with the world? I am. Yours, Chesterton. Romans 3.10 tells us, none is righteous, not even one. That's everyone, without exception. No one is righteous. Not a single person seeks after God. The despair of the godly is that there is godlessness in the world. 
that man continues in godlessness, that godlessness, godlessness breeds more godlessness, that godlessness breeds wickedness and more wickedness and evil and violence and disunity in the world. But the despair of the godly is also the fact that he, all, he himself struggles with personal sin as well. More on that a little bit later. And so that leads the godly to ask the Lord why. We trust in a God who is sovereign. We trust in a God who is powerful. We trust in a God who will one day come. Why isn't today the day of his return? Why wasn't it yesterday? Why wasn't it a week ago? Why wasn't it a month ago? Well, he might despair at the same time he has within himself an optimism a godly optimism, a holy optimism, a glorified optimism. And it's that optimism, there's a subject of the second, the second point in the psalm. In verse 12, is a plea to God, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Then in verse 15, Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The passage in the Psalms describes someone that is, a, to borrow title from a movie, the passage describes someone that is extremely wicked, shockingly evil, and vile. And that this is a broad definition of a godless person, that whether somebody is, whether the person's Hitler or the Unabomber, or whether the person is a generally good person, the thing that they, all those individuals have in common is that they have the same heart. It speaks to the total depravity of man. And it doesn't mean that nobody is capable of doing any good outside of Christ, but it simply means that there is no part of the human being that hasn't been polluted or corrupted by sin. From his eyes, from his mind, from his heart, from his ears, from his mouth, his inclinations, his tendencies, everything about man has been totally corrupted by sin. Jeremiah 17.9 tells us, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Again, Romans 3.10 tells us, None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all have turned aside, together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. When you get to the gospel, you get specifically to the Sermon on the Mount Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, you have heard it said that you shall not commit murder. Whoever murders is liable to judgment. But Jesus says, but I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Right, so whether a person physically murders someone or whether you are angry with your brother or sister in Christ, both, I mean, it's liable to judgment. I think the scriptures also, I think we can also see in the scriptures that there's varying degrees of punishment depending upon one's wickedness in the world. But the point is that even anger is as liable to judgment as murder is. Jesus also says, 
do not commit adultery. You've heard it said, but I say to you that even if you look at another woman with a lustful intent, you have committed adultery with her in your heart. The book of James tells us that gossiping, slander, cursing another person is equivalent to devaluing their God-given worth. The psalm tells us, I think, is that the depravity of the human heart is as deep as the minds of Moria. Like six of you got that Lord of the Rings reference. Another way to say is that the depravity of the human heart is as deep as hell itself. But the point I think that the psalmist is trying to help us to understand is that nobody gets away with anything. The overarching theme of the godless is that God will not hold to account. I can continue to do what I want. I can continue to do what I please. I can live my life the way that I want to because there is no God who will hold my life to account. But the Bible tells us the truth. Numbers, chapter 32, verse 33, tells us the truth. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. The arm of the wicked might be stretched out in might and strike and shake the fist at God. But God will break that arm. The arm of the Lord is stretched out. And it is up to man whether or not that arm is stretched out to heal or whether that arm is stretched out to break and to condemn. Isaiah 59, verses 1 through 3 tells us, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. The stretching out of the hand of God so that to heal or to condemn. And we see the gracious arm of the Lord so vividly stretched out to the person of Jesus Christ. Christ was a son of God who has come into the world to die on the cross for sinners. Well, it appears that the psalmist began with a degree of doubt concerning the justice of God. We see that he's begun to perceive things through the eyes of faith, reaffirming his trust in God, and even affirming a present reality. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account? Verse 13. But you do see, for you know mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. God sees and God does act. God does not turn his face away. There's an inclination to respond to the cries of his children. 
and knowing the character of God from what we know in the Scriptures, we know that He hates all injustices, that He hates all wickedness, whether they are done specifically to His children or those who do not know Him in a personal way. God hates all wickedness. And the promise of the Scriptures is that He will, that He notes all wickedness and will bring it to account. And that is in part where we draw our optimism. That no one in the, in the end will get away with anything. Hebrews 13, or rather Hebrews 4.13 tells us, And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God will respond to the towering wrath of man with his own towering wrath. So we're reminded here of a good and present reality that God notes all mischief, that God sees all things. He does not turn his face away from all wickedness, but he will bring all wickedness to account. We also see here this holy magnetism. In verse 15, Rather, verse 14, it tells us, You do see, for you know mischief and vexation. You may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Verse 15, The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their hearts. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed, so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. The Lord... It's a transcendent God. The passage reminds us of a transcendent king. And it reminds us that wickedness is not transcendent, that wickedness is not forever, that wickedness will not perviate the earth forever and ever and ever. God is the one who is transcendent, and that wickedness is temporary. It will not last forever. That the earthly man, the godless man, will strike terror no more, and the land of the heavenly king, either because they will perish in their wickedness or because they will turn from their sin and turn to the king who is enthroned forever and ever, right? which is the prayer and hope. We read here of a transcendent God who is near. The passage begins by saying, why God? Why does this happen? As if God is not present, as if God is not here. But the passage then reminds us that God hears communicating that God is near, that God is close. God hears, and that God strengthens the heart. He will establish your heart. He will encourage your heart. He will solidify your heart so that you may continue to put your trust in Him. And not come to a place of despair where you are utterly hopeless. God hears, God strengthens, and that God inclines. He is inclined towards you as a child of the living God. He's drawn towards you. He hears your prayers, and He intends to answer them in some manner, in some way, shape, or form. So 
So while we might despair, at the same time, we have this optimism because we know that the king is enthroned forever and ever. And he will banish all wickedness from the face of the planet. Man, there's so many implications of this passage that I don't even have time to go into, but one of those things, just very briefly, this should give us a sense of urgency in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ, knowing that this describes the heart of man, knowing that this is the kind of condemnation that man is under should compel us to preach the gospel, to pray for opportunities, to pray for a persuasiveness that the Lord would help us and give us a boldness to share the gospel with people so that their hearts would be transformed, so that they would no longer wear the heart that says godless, that they may have a heart that says God-fearer or God-worshipper. We should go and preach the gospel to people so that they may be spared, so that they may be saved before it is too late. But another wonderful implication from this passage is as you think about, as you hear, as you read, as you see the wickedness that's going on in the world, as you even experience personal struggles, suffering in your own life, and you pray that God would abolish all wickedness and unrighteousness and evil in the world, while you are doing that, at the same time, look at your own heart as well. Let us not be so quick to judge the wickedness of the world without also looking at our own hearts. This might describe, yes, the hearts of a godless man, Right, and if you are in Christ, right, that is not your description anymore. That's not your heart anymore. But it doesn't mean that the heart has been completely purified from sin. There is still lingering of sin. There's still this stain or pollution of sin that still remains in the believer. Right, I recently heard the story of a man who many years ago was visiting a church, a very large church. It's a Christian man. He looks in the congregation, he sees this man but that by his appearance looks like he needs Christ. Just by his dress, the many tattoos on his, on his arms, the man kind of perceived that this person needs Christ. And so from a distance, he kind of kept watching him. He kind of, he kind of said to himself, this guy needs to be discipled. And then when it came to communion in the service, he goes up and grabs the bread and the cup, he goes back, he sits with his family, he gathers his family, and he distributes the bread and the cup to his wife, to his children, and he prays with his family. And at that moment, the man became convicted of his self-righteousness. Wow, I thought that man needed salvation. Like, who am I to judge this person? By his appearance, he cannot give his impression that he needs the Lord. And at that moment, he recognized the violence of his own heart and his need for repentance. Yes, there is godlessness in the world. There is wickedness. There is unrighteousness that desperately needs to be judged by the Lord. But let us also not neglect to look at our own hearts as well. 
And even while we do that, we can also rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? Right, in the, in the most, in, in a profound, wonderful, and wise statement from my three-year-old, Jesus is the best. Right, he is the best. Because this was once us. This was our heart. Extremely wicked, shockingly evil and vile. An embracing towards unrighteousness. A love for the world. Did not like Jesus, did not want Jesus until Jesus came into our lives and transformed our hearts and gave us a heart that would love Jesus, embrace Jesus, and want to give glory to Jesus and give us mercy and give us grace and give us eternal life. We can look at the wickedness of the world we can also look at our own hearts and recognize the wickedness that is still in our hearts that we need God to, to purify in us. But also be confident of the gospel of Jesus Christ that we can still draw near to the Lord and the Lord could still be drawn near to us. That He would still incline Himself towards us. That we are not so alienated from God that His arm would be stretched out towards our judgment, but His arm would be stretched out towards us with grace and mercy, and draw us towards himself, even when we feel like we have no business being in the presence of God. That Christ would still be drawn towards you. So rejoice in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Right, we might see our own sin, we might see the turmoil of the world, we might read about the countless injustices that is happening and we might be driven by despair. And to some degree we should. And we should also be driven to a sort of sorrow for our own sins. And that's okay. But it isn't a hopeless despairing. We know the Lord Christ in a personal way. We are hearts been transformed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You can have a sense of optimism that righteousness will be established in the world and that righteousness will also be established in your own heart as well. That while you pray that God, come, send Jesus, establish your peace upon the world, erase all wickedness, erase all sin, at the same time you can pray, God, do the same in my own heart as well. So that I may be more Christ-like and for your glory. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, we need your righteousness. We need your holiness. Lord, we need your grace. Every single day. Lord, help us to continue to put our trust in you. Help us to not be a people without hope or to live like people who have no hope. Lord, and help us to live out the righteousness that is ours in Jesus Christ. Lord, it is a struggle at times and many times we do fail.
But we thank you, Lord, because you have not abandoned us. You are drawn towards us, and you love us. May we rest in that truth. May we find great comfort and hope and encouragement in that truth, all because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to share the gospel with others so that they may be saved and so that they may know the Lord Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.